Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class John Barnes. Barnes was serving with Charlie Company, part of the 1st Battalion, 503rd Infantry Regiment of the 173rd Airborne Brigade during the Vietnam War. And today specifically, we're going to talk about actions in November of 1967 during a time known as the Battle of Doc To. Now to back up a little bit and talk Vietnam at a high level, the, the Vietnam really that we are familiar with as we get into this conflict from, a, from an American perspective really took shape in 1954 after the Geneva Accords, which set up a North and a South Vietnam. Now, North Vietnam was going to have a communist government. South Vietnam is going to have a, a democratic government in theory. But just like any time you split a country, there's going to be, it's not done perfectly. And we would see right away that many factions, there are a lot of we'll say communist supporters that left the South and moved to the North when the two countries were created. But you also saw plenty of supporters of North Vietnam and supporters of communist ideology that stayed in the South. And that's not crazy. I mean, think about any state within the United States maybe as a good example. If we just draw a line right through the middle, you're going to have family separated, friends separated. You know, you used to drive maybe to a different part of the country for a holiday. And now that's out of the question because there's a military border there. It's not crazy that people decide to travel to one or the other before the borders. I'm going to say closed off. It wasn't really closed off, but before the, the two sides kind of steal into their own, into their own ideologies. So just right at the start of South Vietnam's existence, we would see, I mean, the numbers vary, but thousands of North Vietnamese supporters at the very least. And it was a kind of a tricky subject for, for North Vietnam. And this is what we'd see throughout the Cold War in a lot of different theaters of operation. But North Vietnam wanted to be seen as playing by the rules, the international community, right? They didn't want to be the bad guy. Nobody, nobody wants to be the bad guy. But they had these supporters in South Vietnam that, that wanted to bring about change from day one. They wanted to see, you know, maybe a unified, a reunified uh, Vietnam at the time under communist rule or a people's, a people's liberation is going to be a term you'll hear a lot. It's kind of the, how some of these guerrilla communist organizations will name themselves, right? It's always a people's uprising, a people's re uh, revolution of the people. So North Vietnam supports that insurgency is probably a good term to use here. The Soviet Union supports that. The the Chinese support that. Everybody, everybody on that side of the table during the Cold War is going to support the insurgency, but you got to be careful, just like the United States had to be careful to a degree, arming the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. It just can't be that obvious what you're doing. You know, you're rooting for a certain team, but it doesn't look good and you might violate some international norms or laws if you're arming some of these parties. That group in South Vietnam would become known as the Viet Cong, kind of as what we, what we uh, kind of universally call them today. So 
when the United States, the United States starts to enter the war slowly, starts to enter the country slowly, I should say, it's, look, it's a confusing conflict from start to finish. It's very, very challenging to um, tie everything together. It's very challenging to, to give one succinct story of what happened in Vietnam and why we were there and when and how. And we're going to kind of skip through at a high level um, to, to kind of brush over some subjects, but it doesn't look like the South Vietnamese government's going to be able to hold on. They're, they're getting their, you know, attacks from inside their country, these Viet Cong guerrillas. Um, and, and the North is, is ready to move in as needed to support the people, right? If there's a people's uprising, um, you want to see that there's international support and the North is, is excited about that possibility. And the South just doesn't look good from where we sit in the United States by the early sixties, just a few years after the Geneva Accords. And this is a time in world history, the cold war where losing one party from your side is like a gain for the other. It's a zero sum game. So if South Vietnam falls, um, it's, it's a gain for communism, that ideology. And we we've kind of drawn this line that's been debated a lot since, but we drew this line and said like, nothing's going to fall. We can't lose one more country to communism, um, no matter where it is or the population or how strategically important it is for the United States. So that's part of the challenge as we look back now and at the time to say, why were we so interested in South Vietnam? You know, why did we pour so many lives and material and so much money into South Vietnam where most Americans at the time and probably even today would have a hard time nailing down exactly where it is on a map, right? Well, it was that idea within the Cold War where, you know, not one step backwards, if you will. Every single country in the world mattered when it was a zero-sum game. So the United States would slowly enter the conflict in Vietnam. We'd have advisors there very early, um, not necessarily in a military capacity. And then before long, it was a military capacity. We had a lot of special forces soldiers there um, kind of operating out in the boondocks training local forces, indigenous forces to, to repel these Viet Cong fighters as needed to be able to protect their communities, protect their towns, protect their, their country slowly, but surely it escalated. And you see kind of the peak American involvement in the conflict by 1967, 1968. And this is a time period where we've really had a good number of troops on the ground, over half a million for a little over a year. And when we look back today, it's kind of a bell curve, the peak in 67, 68. But the, uh, we're, we're starting to lose support on the home front. We can't have this carry on with half a million troops on the ground forever. So there's kind of this idea that let's go ahead and wrap this thing up. We got to be getting close. And both sides see that. Both sides recognize that the United States cannot maintain this presence and this commitment in Vietnam indefinitely. So everybody kind of goes about it in a little bit different manner. And these, these actions in 1967 aren't necessary. They're related as we look back towards the same objective for each side, right? U.S. victory, South Vietnamese victory, um, or North Vietnamese victory. But at the time, they were just kind of events happening. Um, they were just kind of happening in the conflict, right? It wasn't one planning off of the other per se, but they were both trying to get to their end state of, let's see if we can wrap this thing up in 67, 68, 69. So for the United States, what that meant was 
body count. We have to kill, destroy, decimate the North Vietnamese ranks. It's not that big of a country. There's not that many people fighting for North Vietnam, especially compared to what we saw in Korea or World War II. I mean, it's not even close. So we should be able to rack up enough kills to where they just don't have a fighting force anymore. And we'd see an issue throughout the conflict, especially in that, well, not especially, but it comes to light in this battle of Dok To, where there'd be reports on the ground of 10 enemy soldiers killed. And then your commander might say 10, but you lost five. That number's got to be at least 50. So then the report is 50. And then it gets up to a battalion level and they say 50. We dropped 20 bombs. It should be at least 100. And then it's 100. And then it gets up to a division. And they say, I thought this was a one-week operation. That should be at least 500. And you blink and, and we found 10 bodies on the battlefield. But somewhere in some document, it's reported as you know 100 plus dead North Vietnamese fighters. So well, because that that shows victory, that shows success, right? So what we end up with by 67, late 67 that we're going to get into here during the Battle of Dok To is all the metrics point to the fact that there shouldn't be much of a fighting force left in North Vietnam. We should, you know, maybe another year's worth of really hammering them, really pounding them. And th- there's not going to be a lot more they can do. You know, we'll completely incapacitate that entire military complex. On the other side, North Vietnam is getting some pressure to wrap this thing up as well. And it's competing. Some of their some of their allies say fight to the death, you know, repel the American invaders and, until the last ones on, on, uh, on Vietnamese soil. And then the Soviet Union actually is saying, hold on, maybe we can sue for peace. We might be able to get a, a negotiation out of this. But either way, there's an idea in North Vietnam to kind of have this one last big push. And it's born out of the thought that, again, people's revolution, um, you know, the people's liberation front, whatever it might be, the idea that South Vietnam is on the brink of teetering over and that that if North Vietnam could really have a, you know, I want to say show of force, but it's more than that, to show that they're serious and take over city centers, district centers, villages. If North Vietnam can take those over with North Vietnamese, but 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 mostly, well, not mostly, all across the country would vary, but North Vietnamese and Viet Cong troops, right? These two different types of fighting forces. If they could take over government buildings and cities, well, maybe it would be that tipping point to say, hey, listen, the Americans have been here for a while. They're killing a lot of our people. Um, they're killing a lot of North Vietnamese, but there's also a fair amount of um, not friendly fire, uh, collateral damage, killing civilians and things aren't, like they used to be, there's war all across the country. There's bombs falling in every direction. We don't want the Americans here. And and wait a minute, hold on. They're losing because the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong are taking over all these district centers, the population hubs. Now, this is where there's a little bit of tension. And you can see how there's a gap for this type of offensive because the United States, on the one hand, recognizes the need for local support. And we'd start to push people all across the country pretty early in the conflict. But we're also really tied to this idea of body count in terms of, of, of wrapping up the war by a certain date and, and winning the body count fight. And those don't necessarily play hand in hand, right? They're kind of two different objectives, but winning local support, as we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan, there's no easy way to document that. There's no way to say that this village, hey, Doc Toe is a seven out of 10. And then we do a little work and now it's an eight out of 10, or, or maybe you take some mortars one night and you say, I oh, don't know, Docto is now a four out of. 
out of 10, but you can count dead enemy bodies in the battlefield. That's easy. And, and I can understand the desire to focus in on something like that. Remember, we don't have what we saw in World War II or, or, or Korea where the front lines matter. There's not really lines that matter in Vietnam. So we want something to count, something to, to work towards. But in turn, that leaves these city centers and district centers vulnerable during what would kick off in January of 1968, known as the Tet Offensive. This was the time period where this was, this was it. This was the big push by the North and by the Viet Cong to move into these population centers, which should be the focus if we're trying to win support of the local population, right? To push into these city centers, these population hubs, and, and show that they were still a force to be reckoned with. Now, to get to that point, North Vietnam is looking to the South and saying, we're going to use the American strategy against them to a degree. We need to open up some gaps in these city centers across the country. And there are Americans there and there are South Vietnamese troops there. If we can pull them out into the countryside to fight for the sake of fighting, then those areas will be less defended. Now, there's a couple... There's a couple different diversionary tactics. One of the major ones that's going to take place in 1967 is around the, the siege and the battle of Quezon with the Marines. So this isn't a, a, a one-off event, but what we're going to see in the central highlands in late 1967 is a diversionary attack. It's the idea that the North Vietnamese say, if we can destroy an American or South Vietnamese unit, like wipe them off the map, it will show the Americans how deadly this area is and how strong we are in the area. And they're going to have to reinforce and military personnel, Marine soldiers, aircraft tanks. It's not an unlimited resource. We're going to have to pull from somewhere. And their hope in late 1967 is that we pull from some of these population centers further, you know, against the coast, you know, so Vietnam to, to back up one second, Vietnam's a long thin country moving roughly north to south and the east is all shoreline and the west is going to share borders with a couple of countries the south is going to share borders with north vietnam right in one area and then um, laos and cambodia and there's going to be a a draw by north vietnam to pull the americans towards those border those border areas to fight it out ahead of the push that we now call the Tet Offensive, kind of open up some ground for the North Vietnamese to sneak into these city centers. That is kind of where we're headed during the Battle of Dok To. Now, Dok To, again, in the Central Highlands, it kind of sits in an area where the it, it, it's within reach of a few borders, Cambodia and Laos. And that's really important because you're going to see Viet Cong forces all across the country and they're going to be incredibly deadly. And as the war goes on, their tactics will kind of change. But it's not a conventional military. The North Vietnamese Army is a conventional military. And they have tanks and mortars and artillery. And it's a, it's a, it's a substantial force to deal with. It's a force to be reckoned with. But remember, there's a demilitarized zone and a border that's, that's relatively well protected. And it's only 30-so miles across that separate North and South Korea. It's not that hard to monitor a border like that. And we've got all of these international accords that if they, you know, the whole international community can get behind if North, North Vietnam moves across the border. But the problem in this conflict is that South Vietnam shares a border with Cambodia and Laos, and they have 
you know, we're talking about about 40 miles, I think I should say, of North and South Vietnam border. But then South Vietnam shares almost 150 miles of border with Laos and over 350 miles with Cambodia. That, we can't seal that off. But North Vietnam is going to, throughout the conflict, move through those countries, neutral neutral countries, that they know the Americans at the very least won't set up shop in um, or shouldn't. Again, we don't want to violate a neutral con- a country's neutrality. And later in the war and after the war, there's going to be a lot of controversy around how early did we have American troops in Cambodia and Laos? How often what were we doing there? But it's a problem because the North Vietnamese are able to move their conventional military through these countries kind of secretly um, and attack at various places throughout the South. That said, they're not going to be able to push all the way across South Vietnam. They're going to fight generally in some of these border areas. Doc To is one of those border areas in the Central Highlands. It's incredibly deadly. There's a at, at the time of the fight here, it falls under the 4th Infantry Division, the U.S. Army's 4th Infantry Division. And it's incredibly deadly. So deadly that the, an order goes out that you will not go on search and destroy missions, anything less than a battalion size element. That's, you know, for argument's sake, five to 700. You won't go out in a group less than, let's say, five to 700. It's crazy. And if you do, if you have to break that battalion down into a couple companies for a certain mission, you can do that. The reinforcements have to be no more than one kilometer or one hour away. And as soon as Americans got into contact in this area around Docto, reinforcements or a quick reaction force immediately was activated. There were concerns. These, these hills were fortified. The enemy had freedom of movement. It was hard, very, very challenging to get helicopters into a lot of the places. So you had to move on foot, start to finish. Um, hard to get tracked vehicles or any size, decent sized vehicles in and out of some of these areas. So it was deadly. It was nasty. The enemy was there. So we're looking there because remember, we want to rack up some of these body counts And by November of 1967, we get a notification that the enemy is massing in this area. We get word there's a defector from North Vietnam comes across to the south. And he says, hold on, there are the the North Vietnamese army is massing for a major attack in this area. Soon. It's happening soon. And the estimated number is around 6,000 North Vietnamese fighters. We don't often get into fights with 6,000 North Vietnamese. That's not the nature of this conflict, right? I mean, you're more likely to fight off two or three Viet Cong than even a company size of North Vietnamese soldiers in certain parts of the country. But in the Central Highlands, they're able to hide across the border. They're able to move through some of this terrain relatively undetected. And they're able to fortify many of the hills and forests and ravines and, and any natural, any terrain They're able to fortify without the Americans noticing. Now, it's a problem because the North Vietnamese aren't just moving in there in a search and destroy type mission. They're moving in to draw the Americans out, right? So we might have gotten tipped off in early November that there's a sizable enemy force, upwards of 6,000, and the American leadership gets excited But the, the North Vietnamese wanted us to attack. They were dug in. They were dug in, in in more than one areas. Now, this whole battle of Doc To is kind of broken out into a couple different parts. There's going to be something early on. I want to say three, four, three through six November, there's going to be an attack 
um, on an American company that's out there. Again, probably a little smaller, operating a smaller size than they should, and they get hit uh, pretty hard. And as a response, the Americans decide to put in an artillery battery on a hilltop. Uh, that unit that goes in there and air assaults onto the hilltop gets hit again. And really by November 3rd, you're seeing the start of this Battle of Docto. The 4th Infantry Division is going to call for reinforcements. Those reinforcements are going to come largely from the 173rd Airborne Brigade. And after a few engagements of these units going out and getting hit pretty hard, the the attack continues. The Americans continue to push, right? So the 503rd, 1st Battalion 503rd Infantry is, that's it's, it's a, uh, I'm sorry, it's the unit that John Barnes, Private First Class John Barnes is a part of. That battalion commander decides to split the unit, which is unique. Remember, we were just talking about in the Central Highlands, you're really not supposed to go out in less than battalion size strength. And this battalion commander splitting up his unit right when 6,000 North Vietnamese troops are taking up positions to kill Americans. So risky move. In, in retrospect, um, you know, risky move at the time. And now we can look back and say it was a risky move. He splits this unit up. And one of them is going to be called Task Force Black. Task Force Black is going to include Charlie Company and two platoons, 200 or so American soldiers, paratroopers, kick off into the jungle, thick, nasty jungle. Again, very challenging to get to get uh, helicopters in and out, medevacs in and out, very challenging to get resupplies to these folks. And as Charlie Company and Private First Class John Barnes are maneuvering through the jungle, they are attacked. They're attacked by an enemy force that's estimated. I've, I've seen multiple reports, um, but we'll do how we, we normally do this. It's Some reports said they were hit by one battalion. Other reports said they were attacked by two battalions. Let's take the lesser of the two. A traditional North Vietnamese battalion was about 600 soldiers. So if this task force, company-sized task force, really, task force black that John Barnes is a part of, gets attacked by just one battalion, they have walked into the kill zone, outnumbered three to one on the enemy's terrain, in the enemy's area where they've already laid out an ambush. The unit is on the verge of being decimated. I mean, it's not going to take very much. It's um, it's trouble for Charlie Company, for, you know, as we're calling them, Task Force Black, or as they were called, Task Force Black and... and uh, and John Barnes. Barnes is a grenadier, and pretty early in the engagement, he notices that an American machine gun team has been killed. Now, when you're outnumbered in any firefight, let alone if you're outnumbered three to one in the middle of an ambush, you've, you've got to have that machine gun going. It, it's the, the entire unit could be overrun if, if one of those go down. That is such, such a critical weapon system. So Barnes sees that it's down, doesn't wait for orders, doesn't wait for somebody to direct him. He runs through the kill zone to the machine gun, loads it, and starts firing into the advancing enemy forces. In pretty short order, Barnes kills at least nine North Vietnamese soldiers before he has to stop and reload. Now, when he's stopping just briefly to reload, looks over for the ammunition box and at that time sees an enemy grenade fall right beside him. Well, not right beside him, but right between him and a group of wounded American soldiers that are taking cover behind this machine gun that 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 Barnes is rocking on. And I think you probably know what happens next. 
Private First Class John Barnes, the age of 22, without hesitation, threw himself on that grenade, absorbed the full blast, killing him instantly, but saving the lives of all of the wounded soldiers that were unable to move, sitting right by the grenade. For that action, Private First Class John Barnes would be awarded the Medal of Honor, posthumously. Now, a couple notes here before we wrap up. I think it's worth, we, we've had how many of these stories where somebody jumps on a grenade to save the lives of the people around them. And what I end up, there's always, there's always the comments that you hear on, on, you know, primarily on social media here, but why didn't you throw it or why didn't you kick it or why didn't you do anything else? And I think it's worth addressing this in a few ways. It's this, I have this weird reaction when I see that of, of frustration, almost like, almost like it's this thought that, the guy should have been smarter. He should have, why, why not at least try these other things before you just kill yourself? And I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. And I haven't done a very good job. I don't think articulating it. Um, so I put more thought into it. I'm going to try here to explain my thoughts on that. Maybe a little bit better for starters. There is no portion in basic training. I'll speak for today. I may, maybe this was different in, in different conflicts. There's no portion in basic training or, or any army training, military training, where they say, and at this point, you jump on the grenade. It's not, it's not a part of it. There's not a part in your military training where they say, and if this happens, you pick up the grenade and throw it back. The training around grenades is that you yell grenade and you get the heck out of there. You roll over, you take cover, whatever it can be. It's, it's split second try to save yourself. And the idea is if everybody does that, then hopefully everybody sees grenade, everybody jumps out of the trench and everybody is saved. So when you see soldiers, Marines, or anybody jumping on a grenade, that, that's not a part of their training. It's not something that they would have practiced, you know, like assaulting into an ambush, they would have practiced. Jumping on a grenade, no. Throwing it back, no. Now, think of when you watched a football game recently and there's a fumble and everybody's running towards that ball that's bouncing around on the field. And what do you want to see? You want to see your guy fall on it because unless he falls on it, and we've all seen this a hundred times, they, they try to pick it up and run and they boot it 20 yards down the field or out of bounds, or they pick it up and drop it, or they pick it up, trip and drop it. I mean, think of that times a hundred. It's in combat. You're running you know, or stepping or whatever it might be through fire to get to a grenade that's on the ground. And when you try to grab it, you, you, you trip, or your hands are sweaty or you knock it towards your buddy. Or as soon as you lean to pick it up, it detonates. And if you would have just jumped on it, it would have only killed you. But because you weren't on top of it yet, it killed everybody. So these are these split second decisions where we don't have a, a we, the, these, these incredible heroes like, like John Barnes. There's not a long series of thought that goes into it. It's react and go. And the only way that he could have definitively saved the lives of the men around him at that time that were unable to move because they were wounded was to jump on that grenade and absorb the blast himself. Maybe he had five seconds. That's not a lot of time. Maybe he had two seconds. Maybe he had less. We don't know. He didn't know at the time either. So he he took the selfless act of giving his life to save the lives of the men around him. Now, the final thing worth mentioning here in Barnes's story is he was recommended for the Medal of Honor by his commander, his company commander. And the battalion commander initially said no. We don't give awards for people that commit suicide or kill themselves. How about that? Now, eventually it, it 
uh, made its way through the process and it didn't take very long for Barnes to be awarded the medal of honor, but I thought it was an interesting, you don't often hear that. It's rare to have a commanding officer, um, make a comment like that when one of the soldiers is killed in combat, but it was the case for, for John Barnes. Fortunately that didn't stick. And, and the, the recognition that was due uh, came through and he was awarded the medal of honor for again on November 12th, 1967 during the battle of Docto fending off an enemy force outnumbering his at least three to one jumping on a grenade to save the lives of wounded American soldiers to his left and right, given his life at the age of 22. Hey, thanks for listening to war stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.